You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 98 of the Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living life in ruins. I am your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnan and David Howe. In this special episode, we have Dr. Shane Miller returning returning to the show, number four. And we, we did invite Jesse, but we don't know where he is this evening. I guess one could say that we're out of tune. <laughs> Thank you, David. <laughs> uh, also, I didn't know, Shane, that this is your fourth time. I didn't really think about that. We got to have a five-timers club like Tom Hanks on SNL. You'll be number one. And we'll initiate you to the little more. I'm feeling special right now. Feeling the real the fans want Tune and Miller. Like that's that's what yeah. we get all the time. More of you too. And so for tonight, well, right now just you, which we're totally fine with. We're going to be talking about this recent paper that's been making the rounds in archaeology land by Tankersley et al. The Hopewell Airburst event, 1699 to 1567 years ago, which would put it around 252 to 383. CE, AD, whichever time stamp you want to use. And uh, so we've been chatting about this for like two weeks about about this paper and kind of the ripples it has had, not necessarily within the professional archaeological community, but it gained a lot of traction in pop sci. And so that's what we're here to talk about. Now, definitely, I don't study Hopewell. Connor doesn't study Hopewell. David doesn't study Hopewell. And and Dr. Miller, for, you don't study Hopewell. Yeah. So we're not really coming at this episode from like we are experts in the Hopewell culture, but the four of us combined can talk about the methods and interpretations Tankersley at all are making towards this airburst event, which they surmise is the cause of the end of the Hopewell culture. And that we all have things to say about that. There's a lot to unpack in this bad boy. Yes. So I think it's prudent that we should at least give like a brief background to what the Hopewell is. And according to Britannica, the Hopewell culture, which is a notable ancient Indian culture of East Central of North America, flourished from 200 BCE to 500 CE in what is now Southern Ohio with related groups in Michigan, Wisconsin, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Pennsylvania, New York. The name is derived from the Hopewell Farm in Ross County, Ohio, where the first site, uh, centering on a group of burial mounds with extensive enclosure of bank earth, was explored. The term mound builders was once used to apply, apply to this culture, but now is considered considered a misnomer because later investigations have revealed that the practice of constructing earthen mounds was widespread and served greatly differing purposes depending on the group and region that you find these mounds in. And as we, as Dr. Miller told us, is that this is, this falls within the woodland period in the Southeast, which is after the archaic informative. Is that, that's what it is? After the archaic. Yeah. Okay, so that's like a, a period where you see the earlier precursor is supposed to be the Adina, Adima, Adina. Adina is Adima is a bad band from the early two thousands. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that something that happens in your brain too? That's really bad yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, probably when you listen to their music. <laughs> and then yeah, it's like from that like class of early two thousands rock where everybody was like, get away, go away, stay away. You know, <laughs> look at this photograph. <laughs> yeah. Bickleback contemporary. So Adina is like early woodland. Hopewell is middle woodland. So that's kind of the, the lay of the land. So if you work in Eastern North America, it goes paleo Indian, archaic woodland, Mississippian. And so this takes place smack dab in the middle of the woodland period. So about the same time Rome was blowing up, this Hopewell culture was blowing up. Well, according to Tankersley, that might be literally, not necessarily figurative. Yeah, literally, I guess. Yeah. A lot less olive oil on this side. Yeah. <laughs> so fair. Yeah, because like when we were talking in the green room in Plains World, we don't even have like we go from archaic to woodland to Plains Village. Like we don't have a Mississippian. Our woodland is like contemporaneous with Mississippian for the most part. So that kind of threw me off. So I don't even know where to begin, boys, with this because. Well, can we read? Can I read the just like the out or the, the abstract? Yeah, the abstract. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, read the abstract of uh, Tankersley at all. Jesus H. Christ, it's big. So it's it's a it's a long abstract. Yeah, that's like. Uh, well, I guess it's just that black. Never mind. 
So you're, yeah, it's the bold right. part. You were looking at the intro, man. They should be fired immediately for that. So media rights, iron and silicon rich microspherules, positive iron and potassium. No, it's not. what is platinum? that's iridium. Iridium. Okay, iridium and platinum, right? Okay, there's a bu- meteorites that have a bunch of other <laughs> elements in them and burned charcoal rich Hopewell habitation surfaces demonstrate that a cosmic airburst event occurred over the Ohio River Valley during the late Holocene. A comet shaped earthwork was constructed near the airburst epicenter. 29 radiocarbon ages established at the event occurred between 252 and 383 CE, a time when 69 near-Earth comments were documented. While Hopewell people survived the catastrophic event, it likely contributed to their cultural decline. The Hopewell airburst event expands our understanding of the frequency and impact of cataclysmic cosmic events on complex human societies. Holy crap, that was awful. I'm sorry, listeners. Good Lord. You did better than me, which is mostly why I was laughing, because I can't. I can't read. Um <laughs> Yeah, so uh, this is definitely a like a Hancock thing, and it, you know it's got the buzzword of cataclysm and cosmic in it. So therefore, like a lot of people in the media or the general public kind of like perks their ears up to this kind of stuff. And it's very complicated; it goes way over my head. A lot of this stuff, and like you got to do all kinds of like different, you know, like micro metal analysis and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know; it's complex, which I guess is why we're talking about it. So when this immediately came out, Jesse Toon started, I wish I could go back and find the group text where he was just like highlighting things that he thought were problematic. And so it's like, come on, man, why (laughs) we needed the Toonster, but there's a lot. And I'm not sure how much we want to get into the other comment papers that have popped up here the last four or five years. I mean, it's basically the same group or at least the same group or within one like degree of separation for all these folks. Like I think Tankersley has been on several of these others, like the Younger Dryas Comet paper. I'm not sure if he was on the Sodom and Gomorrah paper, but at one point I actually, I actually have a lot of the, these papers and the authors who are on the paper. I almost have it formatted and ready to go to do like a social network analysis to actually show like all these comet papers have all connecting authors. And so the first thing I think of whenever I look at this and the first note I made is like, why is it always a comet? That's like the simplest, like, why is that the explanation for it? So um, what do you guys want to do? You want to get in the details first? You guys want to do the overarching stuff? Should we talk about at least like, the, the evidence for the comets and then we'll work, work into like what that means and sure I guess I can start it with like to answer Shane's question like we all are taught as children that an asteroid wiped out the dinosaurs and that makes sense we weren't there earth gets covered and you know ash sun goes away things die mammals survive makes sense and it's just such like a catastrophic event that like when something collapses in human society, it's like, oh, well, of course something crashed in and like destroyed it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just like it's a catch all. I guess what would it be in Dave Anderson's bullshit detection post hoc ergo propter hoc? There you go. Like it there you go. happened after, therefore, which or something like that or happened before, therefore. I don't know. Where has that bad. been hiding? <laughs> 98 episodes. And this is the first we're hearing of that. Me and- What? If you I'm take giving you a, props, I'm giving you props. Like that was that was dope. If you take an archaeology class, an upper division archaeology class with Dave Anderson, he starts out every every semester with doing his like art of baloney detection or whatever that's derived yeah. from Carl Sagan, and it's like he goes through that whole entire like here here's the litany of ways in which people make bad faith arguments, and so it's it's a pretty great lecture to kind of sit through it's one of my favorite dave anderson lectures looking back on it now um that i rely on every class that was like the first first day syllabus then that so do you i could walk through what i see whenever i I read through this and just kind of do a narrative would that be helpful yeah man yeah let's set like the scene for the audience who might not know right so as i'm like 
like stream of thought rolling through this, the first thing that they are, they set up is they, they say, look at, here's all these places around the world where there's comets have been documented uh, or impact events or air bursts have been documented. So part of the backstory is, is some of these are within that like group of researchers that Tankersley is either published with or has one degree of separation from. There's also a paragraph in here that starts with comments are dirty fractured snowballs and which makes me want to call David a dirty fractured snowball. I have been called that before. Yeah. I haven't. And so then they go into the background of the Hopewell, which you guys covered. So it's kind of like this culture that pops up in Ohio. They're a mound building culture. Um, They've been heart of the mound builder myth. A lot of these have been documented since the 1800s. They're well known for having stuff that comes from all over Eastern North America, including obsidian that comes all the way from Yellowstone, shows up at some of these mounds in Ohio. So really far flung trade networks. And then they get into all these proxies for airburst. And one of the things they settle in on and talk about are these things called palisites. And I think they're like fragments of comets or something. And historically, the source has been thought to be this place in Kansas. And that it was this stuff was acquired through trade. And instead, they argue that because the chemical composition of the stuff they're finding Ohio in Ohio is different from the stuff in Kansas. They argue that it can't be a byproduct of the stuff they're bringing in from Kansas. It has to be from another source. And because they're finding it at all these sites, they argue that a more likely source would be a, be an airburst. And so they have a whole bunch of maps. They have a whole bunch of figures of places where they've sampled. And then they have a graph where they try to show these spikes by depth. And I'm not sure what the X axis is on these spikes, but it's kind of like the other, the other comet papers where they argue where it's nothing, 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 nothing. And all of a sudden a big spike that's consistent with a cosmic airburst raining stuff from the skies. And then. Can you say that they, those graphs look like comets? Yeah, there's a little a little point at the end, and then there's like this <laughs> right, right, yeah. rays coming off of it. It's like, oh my god, it's a comet! And like, wow. and real quick, like airbursts. We're not talking about like some extraterrestrial objects like hitting the Earth's surface. They blow up prior to impact with the ground, and that's where we get this right. term airburst. And then at the end of it, they say this kind of there. They use some some dating methods here. I'll let. I'll let Carlton dissect that. I mean, so one thing, like if you look at like figure 21 where they're doing Bayesian adjustments to the radiocarbon ages, that time period that they're looking at generally, you know, 1700 to 1600 years ago, there's like a radiocarbon plateau in which it's hard to date things. It's not nearly as bad as the shit I have to work with at 1200 or 1200 AD, but like it's hard. You get a bimodal distribution of the radiocarbon date. So it can't tell if your date is coming from like 600 years ago or 500 years ago and you just kind of sometimes Bayesianists or like people dating just kind of have to pick one that feels best because we don't know how to overcome that challenge to the radiocarbon curve at the moment but at figure 21 you know the way they use it is like Halley's Comet shows up at 374 CE and there's a couple of those bimodal distributions that fall within that 374 so they're saying well based if this is happening because of an airburst, we can pick which one of those distributions that's associated with because of Halley's Comet. Did that make any sense? Yeah, it did. And did so, I, do I sound intelligent? You sounded intelligent. Oh, oh man, dude, I'm learning. So, like, the other thing is, is like they have these 69 near Earth comets that they talk about. Like, they argued that in this span, there were 69 near Earth comets that came around. And if I'm not mistaken, did I read that somewhere that that's from like some Chinese observations or some like historic Chinese data set or something that they got that number from? Am I making that up? Hashtag free Winnie the Pooh. No, it's in here somewhere. <laughs> Which I thought that was, I have to admit, I thought that was clever. It was like one of those like old, it's like Chinese scientists that wrote something down and yeah. were recording it. Okay. Okay. Oh, back I think that's right. Like his current Chinese I'm not going to say it. I don't want to die. Yeah. So you got Plato 
you know, writing down comments over here. Chinese Play-Doh. Yeah. Right and then they get into some oral history stuff at the end where they argue that a bunch of these different, I guess, greater Great Lakes groups all have references to things that can be interpreted as airbursts or comments in their oral history. And I was going to I was going to ask Carlton about See, how that pissed me off. And I'll tell you why that pissed me off is that, that why is that at the end? It's like a footnote. It's like, here's all of our data. And then also it's like two or three sentences. They don't even name the tribes. They're just like, yeah, do these descendant tribes in the Great Lakes talk about an airburst period? It's like, why even add it at that point? If you're not going to tease that out or cite anybody, who cares? I was thinking about like the, the description of what you told me your your master's research was on and trying to use radiocarbon dating, like Bayesian modeling and oral histories to try to like, you know, connect the dots of this stuff better. So it's just not kind of like a floating story out there that you're connecting it to other things that happen with the archaeological record to make it like a more robust story. It kind of felt like tacked on at the end. It's like arm wavy, like, hey, this could kind of be, but you're kind of like, it could be a lot of things. Yeah, it's not contextualized. Like there's no... When I did that thesis research, I had to make like a relative chronology in order to make the Bayesian make sense. But when you just throw like, oh, well, they talk about an airburst, it's like, okay, it, it, it could completely out of its context of when that story is supposed to take place and all these other things. So like, yeah, it kind of felt, I mean, this isn't new, like archaeologists kind of throwing in some sort of indigenous interpretation that they don't really discuss. So for me, kind of reading it in this paper by Tankersley, like I don't... That doesn't carry any weight for me. Okay. It's not done properly. Like if they, if it was in a historic document, like they did with the Chinese, they flesh that out. So why aren't you giving the oral traditions that same amount of, um, of scientific rigor, but instead it's, you're just blindly pinning the tail on the donkey and saying, Oh, look, it fits. Yeah. yeah. It very much seems like a four or like a, an afterthought and it's placed as such. I mean, you, if you do the research beforehand and, and, and go from there, I think it, it holds more weight or you can at least talk about it and contextualize it in a way that makes sense. I think on that note, we're going to end this segment of episode 98 with Dr. Shane Miller and we're talking about the Hopewell Airburst event. So enjoy these ads. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to segment two of episode 98 of the Life in Ruins podcast with my co-hosts, the dudes. (laughs) Well done, Shane. Well Thank done. Thank you, Shane. Thank you. I didn't know who I didn't know who to go first in order. Like if I'm looking at it in my screen and I don't want to like go with somebody first and have David be like, why'd you put me last and make it all awkward? Um, I didn't want to I didn't want to ruin things. Well we do it alphabetically. So C A C O D A. That's how we've that's how we've avoided this conflict. Okay. <laughs> I think I think David's always last and I'm technically because alphabetically, he's last. I mean, if I'm we have someone always doing this session too. So. When what one of doing? us drops out and we bring on an Ian, he'll be last. You know, it's all just, we just all, for, you know, just how we're, the name system works. Are we doing first names or last names? Come on. Uh, first names. We're doing comets. Oh, comet. <laughs> Keep it. Okay. Cleaning stuff up with a comet. <laughs> I have a question. I see on Reddit a lot, on the archaeology Reddit, which is currently a dumpster fire, as usual. Now sometimes it's good people keep posting these things about like bronze or copper that's in uh like up north by like the great lakes or something like that and that it was an impact thing and like we're like archaeologists are hiding evidence of like the copper age and the americas does this have anything to do with that i don't think so it wouldn't surprise me if it's what's funny is i talk to people who don't really know that much about they're not like neck deep in archaeology, like maybe we are by they're just regular folk, but they'll hear about stuff and they'll go down a rabbit hole started by Joe Rogan having Graham Hancock or they'll be wow. on the, the Reddit the thing and they'll they'll come out with all kinds of weird stuff like, you know, that. That's yeah. a new one to me, but I had somebody who was, who gave me a whole entire spiel, like on a college football message board about how, you know, <laughs> You know, it was like lecturing me about how we, how little we know about, about how long people have been in North America and yada, yada, yada. And I was like, wow, okay, that's weird. That's, that's really yeah. weird. 
It is um, weird, right? Like, how many shovel tests have you dug, man? Where yeah. you pull up nothing but friggin' bison bone and deer bone. Yeah, um, it's like one of those things where I don't want to go full argument from authority either. You know, shout out to Dave Anderson. Bad arguments. Right. But yeah, it's weird when people take off and run with stuff like this comment paper. And it's weird. Like, you guys sent me those, like, public press articles, like the popular articles. And I was like, whoa, people are going to take this in some weird directions. Yeah. Like one of the titles is a cosmic airburst may have devastated a vast native American culture 1500 years ago, which is a bad imp- interpretation of the paper to begin with. Cause I think they suggest it, right. That yeah. it might have a factor might have factored into ultimately the hope well decline, but it's not saying that like alien artillery, like ruined the hope well right like starship troopers that's what i was thinking (laughs) (laughs) damn bugs man there's also no way to rule out that it was not thanos you can't there's no constant to hypothesize with that but do you guys follow mark boslow on twitter no i used who that is so mark boslow is this guy who works i think at los alamos He's based out of New Mexico and he's a guy that's done a bunch of the actual modeling for how impact events, how you actually model them. And like, he's been very, very, very antagonistic to these series of comet papers saying that they're basically physically impossible. Like the story that they're, they're using their, the mechanisms for like the younger dries comet. I'm assuming this, he really went in on the Sodom and, Sodom and Gomorrah comet paper I just said like the actual physics of this are impossible. And so, I mean, there's, there's, that's the other thing that's like hard to convey to people too, is like the, a paper like this will come out nature, the scientific reports, whatever it is, the parent company for this, like they have a vested interest in generating controversy because that gets clicks, articles get shared, they get cited more articles that, are controversial get cited more because people immediately start arguing about them. Kind of not unlike the dynamics on Facebook that drive those, those dynamics back and forth. When you get eyeballs on it, it generates clicks. And if you're a journal like nature that also drives up your citation indices, whenever there's, there's controversies. And so that's part of their metric for trying to argue that libraries need to carry their subscriptions and all kinds of other things is like, look how, how, how important our journal is. Look at all the citations from these articles in our journal from the last year. This is where the conversation's at. You need to pay us lots of money so you get access to our journal. So there's like this financial vested interest in maybe promoting things that are controversial. That makes sense. I mean, it's all just clicks. Like if, if yeah. it, you know, Meteor takes out indigenous, you know, society. I mean, it, it's the same stuff we always talk about with the... What was it? The White Sands one and the uh, Saruti one. It's just like it. It's buzzwords. It gets clicks. It's like easy to digest. Like it's it's a footprint in that case. Like okay, there's evidence of people. It's not like some seed in someone's poop. Mm-hmm. And like you know the mammoth one. It's like oh well, they were extracting the marrow. It's like quick and easy. Um, and this one is just like a you know they're gone. I'm gonna add to that. I think it's these papers do really really well because it's like two things it's like one scientists don't want you to know about this that scientists are ignoring the data that's like Saruti that's White Sands that's all these these uh you know that's the younger younger driest impact theories that this appeal against that like us as archaeologists don't want them to know what's really going on and it's all and these all these things are also tied to like one single event so it's easy for folks to understand you don't have to contextualize the paleo indian period you don't have to contextualize geo arc you don't have to put them into and give them a bunch of other information to under, help them understand why this is true or, or not true so i think it's it's these like one-off things that really like go and and explode into the popular culture just because it's yeah, it's an appeal to appeal to authority saying that we we don't know about it, and also that it's just easy to comprehend. I think, as I think David alluded to earlier. Yeah, and while you were talking, I was just thinking too. Like, we know how like Rome fell. I mean, there's like many. You got to incorporate the Visigoths. You got to incorporate Attila the Hun. You got to incorporate the Franks. You got to incorporate disease, money, 
power shield's not working right. I don't know. But like there's a lot of stuff that we can talk about with that and it's all historical and we know the processes in which like a civilization just fell and like China and um, like, you know, Alexander's empire, they all just ripped each other apart. But over here, we don't have that information and there's all that nuance to stuff about how civilizations rise and fall. And in this case, it's just like, maybe it just kind of like ran its course and like it dissolved into other you know, or different cultures and, you know, it just comes and goes like it does in Europe or Asia or Africa. And like, again, like a comet is just like, oh, well, that makes sense because there's all that nuance that people don't have. It's it's like, I I feel like a good, since we're talking about comparisons to Rome, it's like, it's trying to understand what Carthage was like after the Muslim expansion in North Africa, if you didn't have any written record. Or something like that. And you're just like trying to like, you've got so much cultural overprinting that it really ruptures a lot of stuff. And without that written record, you've got oral histories and oral histories are very complex. You know, I, I read this article and they talk about, oh, well, after this event, Hopewell's created circular like impact craters and emulating the comet event. And I'm just like thinking, like we know the archaeology in the Southeast like poverty point is like a thousand years before this. That looks more like an impact crater to me. Like we have a record of cultures in the Americas creating circular structures well before a cosmic event like this. Like it just, it's not, Mm -hmm. you know, going back to that term context, like this is not a well-written paper that contextualizes the hope well within a tradition of earthworks that are circular that span from, you know, the Ohio river Valley down to um, Peru. Right. Like they don't contextualize, like, is this an increased amount of comments within this period? All they say is that there's 69 comments within this period, but humans have been seeing comets since humans have existed. So what, what makes this period special? They don't really tell you that within that. And why, why is this all of a sudden, why would they why would they pick it up more here and create like whole earthworks based on this even though people have been seeing that stuff for thousands and thousands of years it's that that is a big part of the context that is missing in that i always like to think of these things in terms of like statistical probabilities so like as i was reading this several things like jumped out like they said that the stuff uh, that the palites or whatever the, those terms were, they're different from the stuff in Kansas and they're like 10% different in iridium or something like that. But without the context of knowing what that background scatter is and really zeroing that out, is that is 10% a big number or a small number? You know, like, um, is it a statistically significant number? I, it's hard to evaluate. Then you start like rolling your way through this and there's like several other things like, this graph with the spikes by level, like how are those statistically significant or are those within the error rates of the instrumentation? Then you start thinking about that and it's like, all right, well, what about, how about finding some sites that date well before this or well after this in that area and see if this, these things pop up. Are you looking at stuff that seems to accumulate on stable surfaces with people around or is these, uh, do you, do you need a big catastrophic event to have this? Is it like a bunch of little small events or one big event? It reminds me of those, the argument in Europe with like the origins of geology is like, is the geological record created by very few big events, catastrophic events, catch it's called catastrophism or just the regular everyday things that we see, which is uniformitarianism. And so it, seems to me you can create a uniformitarianism style counter argument to a lot of this that it's just the stuff that happens when everyday people are using stuff and if they're processing the bits of meteorite that are coming from kansas that stuff's going to spread around an archaeological site i'd be curious to see like talking about population dynamics in these areas because they talk about like a, a a breadth of geography and cultural and you know, population demographics. I'd be curious to see like some probability distributions of radiocarbon data for this period, because if there is an airburst around this time, that's causing like fires and burning down. Like part of their argument is they have all these sites where things look burnt to hell. Then we should see, you know, population 
depopulation areas, right? So if we're using radiocarbon dates and a sum probability distribution as proxies for population, around this period, you should see a decrease in radiocarbon data. Mm -hmm. And you should see increases in outlying areas. You know, on that point too, that's that's actually a really great point. And if you also think about sedentary people, they talk about them becoming more sedentary. They're not moving around as much. They're not moving our fires around as much. They're burning more stuff in one place. It should not be surprising that there's more evidence for burnt things at these sites because that's what people do. Like for over a million years, we've been setting things on fire. And so it's like that stuff should be accumulating more at these sites. So I don't know, man, it's, it's hard for me to get there. It's hard. It's just, and I hate, I hate being a hater, but man. But it's like, as we've talked about with the footprints and with Saruti, like these kind of topics that are, that are essentially this paper, this airburst paper is trying to change, radically change our understanding of why this archaeological culture ceased to persist in time and is the cause for a transition in human behavior in the Southeast or, or Ohio River Valley. Like that has to be, as we've talked about previously with you, like this has to be investigated critically in a critical lens. Like this isn't just some raw, like raw material sourcing of chert that might be like, okay, these people are getting it from West Virginia instead of Georgia. whoop de doo This is, oh, an extraterrestrial object came to our atmosphere, blew up, caused some crazy shit on the surface and radically changed the, the trajectory of human life ways. I know this is going to be my conversation starter at SAAs. Anybody, anytime I run up on somebody who studies woodland period stuff, I'll be like, yo, Eddie Henry, what you think about this? Uh, what you, what you think about this Hopewell comet paper and just what that comet do yeah, what that comet do what that comet do. That's a new sticker. That's yeah. a new sticker. David, get on it. Yeah. Working on it right now. <laughs> I, I was just going to add that I think, and everyone, we've all studied this and heard this and talked about this multiple times. It's like things fall apart in societies for different reasons and it's complex. And if you point to one thing falling apart is causing this whole thing, you're probably wrong. I mean, it's people move for a bunch of different reasons. And I, you know, this, this one, this narrative that one thing changes everything is, it, it just doesn't, I don't think really, it really undermines the complexity of humans and their culture, I think. I made a note in the PDF as I was reading through it. It reminds me of uh, this study by these two behavioral economists, uh, Kahneman and Tversky, the famous behavioral economist. And there's a really great example of just how our minds work. Similarly, we all are, all of our brains have like the similar flaws and judging probabilities of things happening. And he's got a great example of having a brief description of an individual. It's like a young lady. Here's what she majored in in college. This is what she does. And the two answers you have to choose from are Linda is a banker and Linda is a banker who's active in the feminist movement. And after reading that description, everybody always picks Linda as a feminist, Linda, the Mm -hmm. feminist baker. But the odds of without realizing it's more than more probable that Linda is one thing than two things. And the the outcome of that, why that study matters, is it kind of they build off of that and show that we love a narrative. If we have a narrative, a good narrative causes our brains to throw probabilities out the window. And so this is like a narrative. Here's this one thing that happened that caused all these other things. And it's in our, it's like catnip to our brains to like think, oh yeah, now this is likely without asking, is it probable? They actually have a term in here. It's like, it is probable. And that's a difference. It's like one of those things. It could have happened like the ancient aliens guy, but is it likely to have happened? Those are two very different things. Of course. And with that, we're going to end segment two of episode 98. We'll be right back. I'm here to talk more astrology. Is that what we're at? Astronomy? No, I was trying to make fun of it. Astro-astrology. Gemini's in retrograde. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. 
Apply today at penfed.org slash savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Welcome back to episode 98 of the Life Nerds podcast. We're here with Dr. Shane Miller talking about uh, in the Hopewell Comet. We've talked a lot about how we're skeptical about it and how we, you know, we're always just like, oh, here's another thing in the media that's just like, meh. Like, what evidence do they present in this article that, like, is actually kind of neat and interesting, like Dave Anderson would pull from it? Or, like, if we if we weren't being skeptical and we were cool with it, like, what? you guys hear what I'm saying? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Flip it around, look at it positive and not be a hater a minute? Yeah, just, like, to be objective. I would like to know more about that sourcing thing they did where they, with the meteorite fragments from Kansas that everybody just assumed that they were from Kansas and being trucked into Ohio. Like, is there a there there? Like, is that legit? Like have people been misidentifying the source of this stuff for a long time? Because like, that's part of the fascination with Hopewell is like the long distance trade network aspect of it. And so if he figured out, if they figured out that this is not actually the source of that and it's from somewhere else, that's interesting. Even if it's not like airburst related, raining from the skies, you know, I think that's pretty freaking cool if that's not the source. It's not as exciting as airburst, but it's still fascinating. Yeah. When I was looking at the Bayesian, like for some, it's there's this weird I don't know if correlation and causation are related here, of course, but like when there's these major transitions in the archaeological record, there always seems to be these radiocarbon plateaus where we don't like it's the same. This is the same time period for the Olmec and some other major transitions in human history there. We can't figure out the exact dates because there's this 300 year period where we can't figure out where the radiocarbon dates go. And I've always thought about that, especially in my research, because I deal with two of them and they're right when like woodlands ending, Cahokia is ending, like And I've always like, when I see this, it's like that same thing. I'm like, part of me was like, I entertained for like a moment. Could it be like these near earth objects or airbursts, like putting more carbon into the atmosphere? And that's why we might be getting these. Like those were the thoughts I was having and kind of made me really start to make me think critically about some of these other events in time of like, well, maybe it'd be interesting to see around these other periods in a radiocarbon curve where we have these plateaus, like or their evidence for airbursts then because like that's something if someone can figure that out like whoever figures out how to accurately date during these radiocarbon plateaus they'll get a nobel prize because fundamentally it's like i'm so deep in that literature where people are like we have no idea you have to pick a hill a literal one of those probability distributions you just have to pick one yeah so well, I mean, you bring up a good point it's like with the younger dryas impact stuff too it's like okay if it if it did happen, like I personally don't think it was like the be all end all. Like it did that. There were other factors at work already. Like mammoths were dying before that. Like the population was going down. So like it didn't help if it happened, you know? So like in this case, like if there was an airburst, like the civilization could have been declining and like it just didn't help. Um, mm-hmm. But like to say that it like it ended it, like I don't, you know, I don't know. I think it's an interesting question too, is to say how human communities adapt and try to understand these cataclysmic events when they happen. I think that is an interesting question that you could fundamentally look at in the archaeological record. So what, what do these impacts impact essentially? I think it's a cool question, but I think it's a hard question to get at without really good chronology, really good understanding or even historical records. I think that's the way to do it. So I will give them that, that like try and understand these cataclysmic events and their effect on human populations is a, is an interesting question. I'll give them that. And I also, I, I know we're supposed to be positive, but if they would have made their Bayesian approach a little bit more robust by putting like end and start boundaries around the sites they looked at, they could have been able to figure out their start and end dates would have been a little bit more precise. So like, I was just kind of like realizing that the Bayesian that they show us is just kind of like the distribution of radiocarbon they have. But if they did like what I do and others do to figure out start and ends for different sites or cultures, 
that can partially overcome the bimodal distributions. So I'd be curious, like myself, well, they, do they give us the radiocarbon dates in the data? I think they send you to a website, right? I can't like, remember. I think they do. I, I believe they, they put their radiocarbon data as a, as a supplemental website that you can go to. Like, I'd be curious to throw those things into OxCal tonight and just make a quick model that has the start and end boundaries and compare that to when this, when what they, they say it's Haley's Comet, if I'm correct. Yeah. I'd be curious. I don't know, man, but like Shane, you're, you are far more entrenched, well, maybe not entrenched, but like out of the four of us here, you are, you're the senior archeologist who's been in this field longer and has gone, has seen much more of this kind of stuff. You know, we're still junior. I still consider myself at least a junior professional in the field. Like, what is your takeaway from from this? Is this part of a pattern that you've been seeing in the literature? And how do you talk about this to your undergraduates? Like these kind of big nature articles that come out that are trying to, you know, shake up the game in the field as we know it. All right. So I, I tell them that you got to like understand the motivations of not only the people publishing, but the people who are doing the publishing, like the actual publishers that we already kind of talked about a little bit. And just there's some ulterior motives behind what gets published now, because like anything, it's weird. You can, you can, you can trace a lot of stuff back to like notions of shareholder value. Right. So again, like why does not to pick on Facebook again, but why does Facebook do the things that they do to try to make money? It's to keep their stock price up. It's related to shareholder value. And so it's not what is best for what is best for archaeology. It's what's best for generating income for for the major publishers. So, so you got to be cognizant of that. And which it's funny, what ends up happening is like some journals like that are regional, like Southeastern archaeology, this would have gotten, I don't think this would have made it through Southeastern archaeology. They're not, they're not really, I mean, they still got, they still got, you know, clickbait problems because they're owned by a corporation as well. But the, the reviewership is much more local and further removed from that game than probably nature scientific reports is maybe I could be wrong on that. Is there, I'm not, cause I'm familiar with like SEAC planes. The Southwest one is called Pecos or what's Kiva is the journal, mm -hmm. but is there like an Ohio river Valley, like Northeastern mm -hmm. society? Mid continental journal of archeology. span And so I really would be interested. It's interesting. I don't, at least for the, the ice age stuff, if somebody comes out with a, with a paper that's controversial, what ends up happening is people will write a response to it and say it's nature or scientific reports or science, and it may or may not get published. And part of it is it's, there's some politics and drama on not only what gets published, but who gets to write counters or critiques of these and so those that don't get through paleo America has been the journal that's actually been the home to a lot of critiques of debates around the peopling of the Americas. I think there may even be some, some regarding the younger dries comet stuff. There's it's become a home for like, this is the place where the, the argument actually gets hashed out that, you know, doesn't have nearly the visibility as the initial piece in science or nature. Yeah, I mean, I remember Bob's back when Saruti first came out, Dr. Kelly roped up a bunch of graduate students and colleagues to write a response. And nature said, no, we don't want to stifle academic thought. And then myself and some colleagues, including Maggie, that's how I found out about Maggie was through Shane about the Ardalan et al. paper on Chakwahidi Caves. And they told us the same thing. Like, no, we don't want your response. So totally, totally understand that, man. Like that's... It's uh, it's a I'm weird so, time. Yeah, I'm glad that they have those places that they're willing to publish that, though, because yeah. you think that it should occur within the same journal and it should be like, that's just the academic process is that you you have papers and you have responses to papers and whatnot. But I'm glad that it's going somewhere for people to read because it's it needs to be said. It needs to be said in print for other people to see. I haven't. What I find interesting is I haven't seen or heard in any of my various 
social networks of anybody writing a response to this. Like the thing about like, you know, that's paleo archaeology folks. It's like get a group together and all of a sudden you've got an email chain with 20 people on it being like, let's ride, you know? And, and I wonder if this is so off the, 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 to the margins of what's going on in woodland period, archaeology mainstream that it's even in their, their realm to even worry about like, like, why would we do that? We're writing real papers. Like, why would you, why would we do that? I can see some people writing it off and which I think is a mistake. I think it's in a major journal. It needs to be critiqued. It needs to be critiqued fully and it needs to be critiqued fairly. And so like any other paper. And so I, I hope that somebody is putting together a, who really knows their woodland period archeology, span who really knows Hopewell to really like evaluate this for the rest of us smucks who aren't woodland experts or not even archeologists. Yeah. I mean, we can hope. Yeah. I imagine someone is like with how, how investigated Hopewell is, there has mm -hmm. to be a couple people who are like, go to sleep steaming thinking about this paper. Yeah. I need to really, Bug Eddie Eddie Henry and Alice Wright. Those are the two at, at SAAs. I'm gonna be like, yo, what you think? Because you know they're they're my woodland period go to folks. They they when I mean, they were in grad school together, they did an edited volume, which is nuts on woodland period landscapes, and uh, it's a great book. I'll be like, hey what you think about this? Uh, is there anything, is there a there there for this argument that the mounds are mirroring airburst and all this other stuff? So I don't know. I'm curious to see what they say. Maybe get a free beer out of it. It'd also be nice to like sit down with Tankersley and his, and his colleagues to kind of like, you know, what's, what's the green room stuff behind this article that you guys all chatted about? Like, what are the things that you didn't include in the scientific report for nature? Like I would generally like to know the thought process, like, as you mentioned before, Shane is like Tankersley's Tankersley part of this airburst mafia syndicate, the airburst syndicate. Yeah, well. And it's like, is he just getting people together allegedly. to do these kind of things, you know, allegedly. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, but, but do you think that conversation you would, you'd be invited and allowed to be a part of that conversation? Oh, absolutely not. No. If I showed okay. up here with my hair down to my nipples at this point and like, Hey, I run a podcast. Like I wrote, like, you know, I, they would tell me to go fuck myself. Like, I'm well aware of that. I mean, now what that I'm being on the job market when people are like, Oh, I know a life and ruins podcast. I'm like, Oh, I'm not getting hired here. <laughs> I think it just takes rapport. Like I know some people in that like list of not tankersly, or any, any of his co-authors, but a lot of the people that are on several of the other comment papers that this crew is all publishing on, you know, I feel like if I were like to call up Chris Moore on the phone and be like, yo man, what's the scoop behind the scenes? Explain this to me. Why'd you guys do this? He'd tell me. And that's because we've known each other for so long. And it's like, we're at the point that we can agree to disagree without being jerks to each other about it because, you know, life's too short and SEAC is too small and no one wants to, no one wants to, to spend their time by themselves in the conference because they're being a jerk. But yeah, I think part of that, like this podcast in general occupies this space. Like there's, if you want to listen to Tankersley and all them talk about it, like there are other podcasts that have had him on to talk about his paper, but like, I'm pretty happy with bringing Shane and others on just to like, you know, what are the criticisms behind it? Cause I don't see too much of that in the media space and archeology span podcast world of, like, you know, we, uh, you know, just for our audience, so you don't think we're shitting on them. Like you guys listen to our podcast, like we promote scientists and archaeologists and science communicators all across the globe to, to introduce you to them and their up and coming research. And we, when, you know, part of this is we get these articles from very established academics that are like, what the hell, you know, I have, I like these episodes where we, where we deconstruct their argument. Like I'm not trying to go after Tankersley at all these people, but this is a, this is a big claim just like the footprints, just like Saruti. We got a, we're hoping like this provides something for our listenership that you, that puts in your heads to make you be more critical as you uh, go through the literature. I think that's my, my hope. Maybe. I feel like I'm like the person you, one of the, me and Tune are like the the Starsky and Hutch that you bring in to try and correct the case or something. I don't know. I mean, I'm too dumb to do that. So it is Same. good to call upon you guys. Yeah. 
Fair enough. To our listeners, if you guys have any comments, questions, email us. We'll talk to you. We'd love to have a conversation about this and other articles. We're always willing to discuss it. You know, that's that's the joy. Yeah, we got a good email from someone that listens in Washington asking for us to do talk more methods and like okay. new techniques in the field. Because um, uh, and so, if you know people, I think part of this is like we don't actually know that many people in the field, you know. And so, like, if you guys know people that are doing cool stuff, like, let us know. Like, part of it is we rely on you guys to tell us what you want and who to talk to. Because um, we're we're getting to a point now, two years into this, over a hundred episodes. We need help. Yeah. <laughs> well, we need help in on like on many avenues. On many levels, yeah. Yeah, nice. yeah. But you know, here we Pay are. A hundred dollars a week for help. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but before we end the show, <laughs> thank you so much again, um, Shane, for coming on. You know, we'll throw all the articles that we talked about today in the episode description. But like, what are you up to that our listeners can can follow? Do you have any new recent publications just so our listeners can follow along with the cool stuff you're doing? Oh well, me. Ashley Smallwood and Jesse Toon are in the neck deep in the page proofs for an edited volume that should come out in, I think, July or August. And it's going to be all things Ice Age archaeology in the southeastern U.S. Hell yeah. So it's going to be a big monster book through the University of Alabama Press. And there's already an Amazon page for it up. So that's pretty exciting. Just whenever you get to see your name on something for on Amazon. Um, we'll throw that down in the link, man. We'll have our people watch it. Oh, we'll do. We'll do. They're going to watch it, but watch, watch, watch it. Yeah. Click watch it for it. Yeah. Watch for it. Yeah. Be on the lookout. So it's, 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 it's late. It's Sunday. You know, let's wrap this up. Yeah. Jane, I guess I uh, normally would ask where do people find you on social media, but we're going to skip right through that. Uh, and I'm on uh, Twitter. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I forgot Twitter exists. Yeah. Uh, What's your Twitter handle, Shane? The Dirty Trowel. That's right. With a U? Yep. Okay. Dirt, dirty, like D-U-R-T-Y. Underscore trowel, I think, too. All in. Well, it's in the description, guys. We know it. Yeah. You know, you did it. So we just interviewed Dr. Shane Miller. You can find him on Twitter at the Dirty Trowel. Please be sure to rate and review the podcast. Spotify now has reviews. Let us know. We're still only got that one review from January. So I read it. February now. Yeah. Carlton's point. Rate and review the pod. I will come to the field. Like if you're listening to this in the field, like screening some dirt right now, look behind you. I am behind you telling you to please rate and review the podcast in the least creepy way, of course, but like. Just rate review the podcast. If you're in the museum, look look around the corner, open up that other shelf. There's me. Rate review the podcast. I don't know what I'm saying anymore. Just rate review the podcast. You know, just it's what it is. All right, bye. That and wasn't with that, impressive. We are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. You know, a, a, a good friend of mine has a schizophrenia, but he's good people. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.